Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let us now go to Genesis chapter 12. The reading this morning, a continuation of the life of Abraham. We come now to verse 10 of the chapter, reading to the end of the chapter, 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, He dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. (coughs) But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. Beloved, the first thing you should notice in God's word this morning is that the land God promised to Abram quickly became the land by which God tested Abram. Verse 10 tells us there was a famine in the land, which means rain had stopped falling, food had stopped growing, and living had become harder and harder for both man and beast. Abram and his wife Sarai and his servants and his flock and his herd were all at risk now, risk of death because of the famine. But this was strange, because this was not just any piece of land that Abram could leave without consequence. This was the land God had brought Abram to, and God had promised to give Abram and to give his offspring. Remember how it all started. In verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12.1. The effectual call of the Lord had graciously intruded 
upon Abram's life, his life of idolatry, remember, in Mesopotamia, and the Lord carried him out of the world and away into the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom at that time involved a special piece of land. Verse 5 says, Abram, Sarai, and Lot, the nephew, all set out to go to the land of Canaan. Verse 6 says, when they arrived, the Canaanites were in the land. And verse 7 says, the Lord then appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then surprisingly, this morning, in verse 10, we learn there is a great tribulation in the land, a famine. And Abram is suddenly leaving the land, going to Egypt. And we're only at verse 10. How could God's promised land be so difficult? Why doesn't God just give Abram the land without Abram needing to break a sweat? Well, this is really the heart of our lesson today. God wants to train us, his children, to live by faith. When God gives us faith, it is not a fully grown faith. It is not as mature as it can be. God will keep testing and keep training our faith so we can go from a little faith to more faith to mature faith. Abram is called the man of faith in Galatians chapter 3. He is the exemplar the template for a life of faith for the church of Jesus Christ. The apostles of the New Testament cannot stop talking about his faith. The whole church of God, from Abraham forward, is especially to learn how to live by faith. Let's remember what faith is. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. I know I got that right because I just quoted it from the Bible. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. When Abram looked on the land, he could see that it was filled with Canaanites and their many false gods. He could see that. He could see the famine was making the land barren and hostile. He could see that. What he could not see is what God had promised. He could not see the land as his own possession. He could not see his own offspring filling the land and owning the land. But by faith, Abram had conviction that God would give him what he could not see. Because God had said so. God had promised so. But Abram's conviction about this was not always so strong. Sometimes his faith became quite weak. Sometimes he went backward in faith instead of forward. Sometimes he went from a fifth-grade faith to a first-grade faith. Abram needed what we all need. He needed to be trained to not let what we see have so much control over how we live. Things not seen are to have control over how the children of God live, over what we believe and do, which means our faith, the conviction of things not seen, must grow. 
And God will see to it that it does. If God has called you, he is now committed to moving you from little faith to more faith to mature faith. He will do it. Now, in John 15, our Lord Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Burn pile. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. John 15, 1 and 2. Divine pruning is what we're seeing in our text today. Divine pruning is a cut, a cut into an already fruitful, fruitful branch. It is a kind of violence. It is a tribulation for the branch. It is a controlled tribulation. It is an intelligently designed tribulation. For what purpose? To bring forth more fruit. This is what the Lord did with Abram. This, beloved, is what the Lord is doing with you right now in this November month in 2023. All sorts of things are happening in your life that you did not order from a menu. But they are as surely in your life as if you did. The Lord ordered them. He pushed you out of the way and spoke into that little speaker, and he was on the other side taking the order. And it's in your life. Why? He is cutting into the fruitful branch. We need to remember that Abram was already a fruit-bearing branch. By saving faith, he was hidden in Jesus Christ. He had taken shelter in God's forgiveness and love. He left behind his idolatry. He had confessed his faith before men by leaving behind his clan. That was his public confession. He had begun worshiping God alone. Abram was bearing fruit. But now the Lord comes to prune him so he might bear more fruit. God allows the famine to press in on Abram. God allows Abram to leave Canaan. God allows Abram to fall on his face in Egypt. And God allows Abram to come back to Canaan with a stronger faith in the things not seen. Let me briefly show you that indeed Abram's faith grew stronger as he walked with the Lord. When Abram went down to Egypt and lied to the Egyptians about his wife, he was about 75 years old. Now we know that from verse 4 of the same chapter, which means Sarai was 65 years old. This is 4,000 years ago. To relate their ages to modern times, you could really just about cut these ages in half to understand their vigor and vitality and Sarai's beauty. Meaning Abram and Sarai had the physical vitality of people today in their mid-30s. But they had weak faith. Yet 25 years later, 25 years later when Abram is 100 and Sarai is 90, this is how scripture describes Abram. He did not weaken in faith 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Romans 4.21. We learn about the hundred-year-old Abram, who's then Abraham, in Genesis 18. He grew, his faith grew, because the presiding Lord made sure. Now let's look more closely at the Lord's testing and training of Abram's faith. Verse 10 tells us the famine was severe in the land. Now just as Abram's wife Sarai had a barren womb, now they both have a barren land. This puts everything God has promised to Abram at even greater risk. If the land is not healthy, Abram cannot survive off the land. And if he cannot survive off the land, he cannot stay in the land. He will either be under it, six feet under, or he will have to get out of it. He needs to feed himself and his family and his flocks. If he stays in the land and his wife dies, or he dies, and this happened to Naomi and her husband and sons, you know the story of Ruth, If Abram stays in the land and his wife dies or he dies, he will have no offspring, which God has promised to him. Abram is under pressure for survival. How will he deal with the pressure? Will he be controlled by the things not seen or will he be controlled by what he sees? It is at this very point Abram needs to decide whether his problems are God's or his problems are his? Will Abram cry out to the Lord for help? Or will he take things into his own hands? Will he stay where God's word has put him? Or will he go where his own works can take him? One way is the life of faith in the God of promise. The other way is the life of fear before the logic of self-preservation. Here, then, is a major lesson about living by faith. Here it is. To be in the exact place God wants you to be does not mean you will be there without trouble. If we could believe that, we would be halfway to the mature faith. To be exactly where God wants you to be, according to his word, does not mean you will be there without tribulation. Affliction, trial, suffering, these are ordinary realities for those who are in the will of God. Anything else is not the Christian faith. Don't believe it. Run from it. Think of life in a church or life in a marriage or the life of parenting. It is easy to think when trouble hits in any of these that I must be in the wrong church. I must be in the wrong marriage. I must be raising the wrong kids. But faith in the God of promise says, I am right where God wants me to be, but I need more faith to stay. I need more faith to rest. I need more faith to do what God wants me to do. Lord, increase my faith. That's the shortest prayer in the New Testament, by the way. 
Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Do you know who prayed that prayer out loud like I just did? With perhaps even more, more forte? The disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know why they said it? Because Jesus had just taught them that if their brother sins against them 70 times and repents 70 times, they must forgive him and receive him back. And when they heard that, that did not fit their sight. That did not fit what they saw other people doing. That did not fit what they saw themselves doing. That word from God made the earth drop out from under their feet. Goodbye, terra firma. They were suspended in space by the word of God, and they had nothing to cling onto. And they cried out, Lord, increase our faith. That's what they needed. When Pharaoh finally kicks Abram out of Egypt, and you saw that in verse 20, Abram returns to the land of Canaan. He returns with even more mouths to feed than when he left, because Pharaoh has given him all these gifts. We have no reason to believe that when Abram returned, the famine was over. But the Lord takes care of Abram. And when he gets back to the land, one of the first things he does is go to the altar he had made earlier, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 4. That which he did not do when he saw the famine. Let's consider this whole matter of Abram lying about his wife, Sarai. When Abram comes to the border of Egypt, he has an epiphany. My wife is beautiful, and I'm about to go into Egypt. He gets to the border of Egypt, the text says, and he has not solved his problems. He has only created a new one. Yes, he is getting closer to food now, but he is also now getting closer to murder, his murder, so he thinks. He fears the Egyptians will be attracted to Sarai, his beautiful wife, and that they will kill him and let her live. Fleeing from one problem by his own scheming, a slow death by famine, fleeing from that, Abram has created a new problem, a quick death by murder. Now we should point out, Abram didn't notice Sarai's beauty for the first time on his way to Egypt. He noticed long before then, she was beautiful when Abram left Ur. She was beautiful when Abram left Haran. She was beautiful when Abram journeyed all through the various cities of Canaan, Shechem, Bethel, Ai. She was beautiful on all of those days at all of those places. She was a beauty, even when he came down into the arid southern land of Canaan called the Negev. Verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9, she was a beautiful woman. But Abraham was never concerned about getting himself killed over her beauty until he's going to Egypt. There were seven, seven different godless nations in Canaan. And Abram was never concerned about them taking his wife and killing him. Why wasn't Abram concerned about Sarai when among the Canaanites? Well, some might answer by saying Egypt was more ruthless than those seven Canaanite nations. The Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and on. Well, it doesn't turn out to be true, does it? 
Pharaoh seems like one of the more reasonable secular rulers when we finally hear him talk. He's also under the plague of the Lord. That softens a heart. But not always. We, we meet an, another Pharaoh later. The other answer others might give is say Egypt had notoriously ugly women and Sarah was going to stick out. <laughs> you guys do the homework on that. But I think the answer is actually what we are talking about. Abram's faith. He's not worried about anybody killing him earlier because his faith was stronger. Now that he's alone in his scheming and not calling on the Lord, his weakened faith makes him full of fear about things that are completely misplaced. He had a stronger faith before the famine. He didn't fear what men might do to him. He was held captive by the word of God. But I think his faith weakened when he saw that famine. And moving to Egypt without consulting the Lord made him more and more under the control of the things he could see instead of under the control of things not seen, which is faith, which is controlled by the word of promise. So here is Abram's scheme for self-preservation. He asked his wife to lie, to pretend to be his sister, and he even slips in this sort of self-glorifying compliment. You really kind of need me around, honey. You don't want me dead, do you? It'll be good for you to keep me. He thinks this will put him, this lie, in a position to negotiate and control things and stay alive because he will then be the brother who has rights over whom his wife will marry. And he can make some money on this. So they enter Egypt, and sure enough, the princes tell Pharaoh about Sarai's beauty, and just like that, Pharaoh takes her into his house to prepare her to become one of his wives. And Pharaoh starts negotiating with Abram and gives Abram many gifts, verse 16. Abram is now between a rock and a hard place. If, if he does not take Pharaoh's gifts, he appears to be ungrateful and offensive. Why wouldn't a brother take the gifts? Don't you think it's an honor to your sister to be in Pharaoh's harem? You see? But if he does take Pharaoh's gifts, he moves his wife closer down the path toward adultery. Does he not have a duty to keep his wife from adultery? The lesson on faith is this. The more we are controlled by what we can see, the more problems we create. You are not escaping problems, beloved, when you think, I'm going to manage my life apart from the word of God. We don't fix problems. God fixes problems. We create problems because in fear, we stop praying, and then we start striving, and then we start scheming for our own self-preservation. Let me give you great confidence in the exact reason why you or I might spend a week, even a day, prayerless. Here's the answer. It's because you are confident that you can carry yourself through the day and the week 
that you have everything you need within yourself, and that you really don't need God's help. The wonder of grace is that he helps you even though you haven't asked. But that doesn't mean he does not want you to learn about the wicked heart that is prayerless, because it is so presumptuous. I will preserve myself. I don't need to pray. Peter did this very thing, didn't he? This striving, this scheming for self-preservation. It's recorded in Galatians 2. Peter had been eating with the Gentiles in Antioch, which was a wonderful new thing because of the gospel. Jews and Gentiles did not share table. But now, because of the gospel, they were. But when certain men came down from Jerusalem, the text says, Peter started fearing the circumcision party, Galatians 2.12, and he stopped eating with Gentiles. He separated from them, and this led others into sin. And it even led Barnabas into hypocrisy. What is all of this? This is sight-based fear. And it was only defeated, and faith was only reestablished in Peter when Paul came and rebuked him. Paul became Peter's plague, sent by the Lord to boldly challenge him and then write it down in Paul's letter to the Galatians so the whole church of God for the rest of time would understand that even great Christian men can weaken in their faith and be controlled by the things they see and let go of the things that are unseen. The Lord is doing the same thing with Abram here. Look at Genesis 12, 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The Lord is not going to let Abram go into a life of unbelief. He is not going to let Abram apostatize. The Lord comes and gets his hand in Pharaoh's house and drops the plagues. Abram's weak faith will not ruin God's promise to Abram. This is divine love. Who are the people whom God loves? Awesome Christians? No. Called Christians. He loves them all. And he will hunt them down every hour to train and test their faith so that they have the faith necessary to persevere to the end and enter upon the heavenly glory. God loves those he has chosen. He will not let their failures break the bond of his love, which means the Lord will come, he will rebuke, he will restore, and he will recover his servants to the way of faith. Abram has created a mess. The Lord has never taken his eye off Abram. So the Lord comes and he afflicts Pharaoh with these plagues. Now, when you hear this, this should sound very familiar to you. Some people coming from Israel down into Egypt, being taken captive, the Lord sending plagues, This sounds very familiar. In 10 verses, we have in the entirety of the career 
of the Hebrew children 400 years after Abram is pushed out of Egypt. 400 years, Israel is brought out of Egypt through plagues being poured out on Pharaoh's house. In miniature, Genesis 12, 10 through 20, is the story of the church under Moses. Why? Why is it so identical? Because remember what we have said. Abram is the man of faith. And the Lord is showing his church that we all must be afflicted, but we will be delivered. We all must be afflicted so that we will let go of our idols, so that we would be delivered again unto the Lord who has chosen us and called us. He will see to it. And you need to remember, and I've said this a few times perhaps in the last two weeks, the Hebrew children in Egypt were rank idolaters. They worshipped the gods of Egypt when Moses showed up. They were not all sitting on their front step waiting for a deliverer named Moses. Ezekiel 20 tells us they were up to their earlobes in the gods of Egypt. And they had to be warned to put those gods away. The Lord was coming to deliver them. And many of them did not. And that's why one whole generation fell dead in the wilderness over a 40-year wandering. But the Lord would have his remnant from his people. Now, there's one more big question, I think, in our text tonight, or this morning. A big question about faith. Why is Abram's faith so connected to the land? Abram returns to the land. He doesn't go back to Ur, where he started. He doesn't go back to Haran after this famine. He returns into the land of Canaan. He goes right to the place where he had built an altar between Bethel and Ai, and he worships the Lord there. We are to see this as the resolution of the conflict in verses 10 through 20. That is, Abram's return to the land tells us this has been resolved. But why is his faith so connected to the land of promise? Well, this is where we get into a major problem. Not a problem we can't resolve, but a problem that is perhaps often not resolved. The seven Canaanite nations are still in the land, and they will be there for another 430, 450 years until Joshua and Caleb drive them out. So when Abram goes back at the top of chapter 13, these hostile nations with their own false gods are there. And Abram himself, he is going to die without ever owning any of the land that will later be called the land of Israel. The only thing he will ever own there is a burial cave for his wife and then himself. Listen to Stephen, the great deacon In Acts 7, verse 5, speaking about Abram, God gave him no inheritance in the land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Not even a foot's length. Now, did the promise to Abram fail? 
because he did not possess the earthly, visible land, it did not fail at all. In fact, by never possessing even a foot's length of the land, the promise succeeded wonderfully. As Hebrews 11.13 says, please listen carefully. Speaking of the patriarchs, the apostle says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A piece of visible earthly land in this age was never the substance of the promise. Never. This was made known right at the beginning to the church with Abraham. Abraham was never given the land. Yet Hebrews just told us that he saw it and greeted it from afar. An earthly, visible piece of real estate was never the substance of the promise regarding the promised land. It was always a sign, that earthly land, of a heavenly country. It was always a sign of something even more cosmically enormous and wonderful, a heavenly kingdom. This starts to open up to the church, especially in the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his Beatitudes, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, not the land. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, says to children, Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. But in the original commandment from Sinai in Exodus 20, it says, that you may live long in the land that the Lord thy God is giving thee. Paul has understood, and he is updating this for the whole church of God, Gentile and Jew, that the land of Israel, that little land bridge to the, on the far east of the Mediterranean, was always and only but a sign of a much larger and more wonderful and more permanent, invisible country a new heaven and a new earth. This becomes even more vivid in Romans 4, where the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now Abram is the heir of the world, not just a piece of land. Which world? The one that is passing away, as John says in 1 John chapter 2? Not that one. Not this visible, present, evil age, as Paul calls it in Galatians 1.4. The world that Abram is the heir of is the new heavens and the new earth, where we participate through our glory union with Jesus Christ. 
the land promise always had a fulfillment greater than earthly, visible things only. The greater fulfillment was the heavenly country, a place for men and women, a place for boys and girls who have a human nature to dwell with God in that human nature, in the presence of God forever, and a glorified material new creation. That's what the land promise was always about. And our Lord Jesus is the first fruits of that, for he has taken our human nature to the heavenly country. He is the first one with our bone and with our flesh in the heavenly country. And what is he doing there, among other things? He is there to testify to us that that is home. That is the promised land. That is the place all believing children of God shall obtain by faith alone. And this is why we hear things like this from our apostle. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Beloved, that includes the true Israel of God. You cannot see it. That includes the true land of the church of God. You cannot see it upon the earth. You cannot travel to it. But you shall indeed sit down in it. You indeed shall rest in it. For it is a heavenly country that already your head, Jesus Christ, is seated upon and in. So, just to show you how strong faith is, in the very final words of the book of Habakkuk, the prophet has finally been converted. Habakkuk is like Jonah. He is transformed through the very call of God upon his life. And he comes to saving faith. Habakkuk knows that the Chaldeans are coming to trample the land, coming to destroy everything that is living in their path, sent from the Lord himself to bring about a discipline upon a people who have become idolatrous. But we know for certain that there is now at least one prophet who who has obtained the righteousness that comes by faith. And that prophet says in the very final words, in, in prospect of the coming Chaldeans, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Everything is just described as that which you can see. Decimation for Judah. And then he adds, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk sees the unseen things. He sees 
that there is a land beyond the earthly land. The land which the earthly only pointed to as a sign, just as the earthly tabernacle always pointed to the heavenly temple of Christ's body. Just as all the sacrifices and the priestly service at the temple always pointed to Christ's body and his priestly service. The land as well. Habakkuk sees that he has residency in the land that cannot end rejoicing. And he has that residency by one thing, which is the central point of the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He has the righteousness that only faith can obtain, the righteousness given by God, which is the same righteousness of Abraham, the man of faith. Beloved, I, I'm urging you to understand today that it is the will and work of your God, your great shepherd, the great overseer of your life, the great elder and pastor of your life, the living God. He is about the business of moving you from little faith to more faith to mature faith. He does it through affliction. He does it through his word. He does it through many encouragements, but he will see to it that it is done. For you will simply be crushed if you want to control your life by the things you see. You will be just like Abram in this text. You will think that you have escaped one of your problems through your plan and your works only to create worse problems. It is only God who fixes our problems, and it is only we who are called to live by faith in the promising God who did not spare his only son. How could he now not give us all good things, Paul says in Romans 5, having given us his very best already. And so, beloved, the real place that we set our eyes is upon the unseen world to come, a world upon which our own nature has already entered through Jesus Christ. And so I close with these words to give you great encouragement and embolden you. They're from Thomas Brooks in his wonderful book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. For a close, remember this, that your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on, and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that we would not languish in the little faith, in the weakening faith. We pray, O Lord, that you would come and, by rod and staff, shepherd us forth, Strengthen our faith. Do whatever you must to do so. If it even requires us to fall upon our face, if it requires us to indeed be rebuked by a Gentile who might look upon us and our behavior and say, I thought you were a Christian, just like Pharaoh did in a way. Whatever it requires, O Lord, we ask that you would come to us if we must even lose the world to come to faith, oh Lord, we pray that you would give us such shepherding care and let us see that we have immediately gained what cannot be taken. Oh Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to live by faith for your glory. And Father, we do ask that you would, you would also be pleased 
to let us more and more control our lives by the unseen things of your word. That you would help us take a fair and honest account of that which controls our lives today. Father, bring us back to where we belong. Set our hearts again upon our heavenly country and let us be controlled by sight of it, a sight which only faith can give, but oh, what sight faith gives. As our apostle John said, it overcomes the world. Oh Lord, let us be controlled by what our faith sees from our heavenly country. Let us then see the absurdity of this world's ambitions. Let us see the folly of this world's values. Let us see the darkness that holds men and women in their grip and let us have compassion on them and move toward them instead of away from them. Let us see the truth that only forgiven sinners populate heaven and let us abandon our pride. Oh Lord, give us such a sight of our heavenly country that it so controls our earthly life that even if our friends, our, our brother, our sister, our parents think we are taking this too seriously, that we would know that we cannot take it too seriously. For where our head is, Jesus Christ, that is all that matters to us. Press this upon us, O Lord. Give us such a sight of him. In Jesus' name, amen.